It could be my brother, it could be my son, it could be my nephews. The first thing you think about is, it could have been us. A city still grappling with the fatal police beating of Tyree Nichols for Sunday, January 29th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. We are in Memphis, where the beating of the young black man at the hands of black police officers makes some here consider the cycle of violence in which they are all caught. People who have been brutalized and traumatized, sometimes the same brutality that has been inflicted, then those individuals hurt other people. And Congressman Steve Cohen gives his thoughts on how Memphis can move forward. That's all coming up. But first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Some state lawmakers in Tennessee say they want to pass police reform bills in the wake of Tyree Nichols' death. As NPR's Joe Hernandez reports, Democratic lawmakers say it's necessary to prevent a similar incident from happening again. Police training and more are on the table for top Democrats in Tennessee's legislature who say more has to be done after video of the beating of Tyree Nichols was made public. Nichols died three days after being stopped and brutally beaten by officers with the Memphis Police Department. Five officers were fired and charged with his murder. Three state lawmakers now say they want to overhaul police training and mental health monitoring, limit officers from moving between departments after being disciplined or fired, and reevaluate low-level traffic stops, according to NBC News. Republicans hold a majority in both houses of Tennessee's state legislature. Joe Hernandez, NPR News. Nichols' funeral will be held on Wednesday. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy says he and President Biden will meet on Wednesday to hash out a deal to raise the debt ceiling. NPR's Amy Held reports McCarthy says Republicans won't let the U.S. default, even though a stalemate has meant the government hit its borrowing limit 10 days ago. Until Democrats agree to future spending cuts, Republicans have refused to raise the debt ceiling, meaning the government cannot borrow to pay for what's already been spent, putting the U.S. on track for an unprecedented default. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy tells Face the Nation Republicans won't let that happen. He'll talk about it with President Biden this week. To put us on a path to balance, at the same time not put any of our debt in jeopardy. McCarthy says he may relent on Social Security and Medicare cuts, but not all spending. I want to find a reasonable and a responsible uh, way that we can lift the debt ceiling but take control of this runaway spending. Biden has been unwilling to negotiate any cuts tied to the debt ceiling. Amy Held, NPR News. Israel's government is increasing its military presence in the West Bank and taking other measures in response to the latest shooting deaths. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports sealing and demolishing homes are among the measures. Israel has long had a practice of demolishing homes of Palestinians who kill Israelis, but that generally involves a degree of due process, with the Palestinian families getting a chance to appeal. Now security forces are being ordered to seal homes virtually overnight, closing entrances and forcing families out into the street immediately. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu told his cabinet that the home of a Palestinian who killed seven people outside a Jerusalem synagogue was sealed and is slated for demolition. He said the government may also revoke the Israeli identity cards of, quote, families of terrorists that support terrorism. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Well, Boston street violence today claimed the life of a teenager. Police say the boy was shot and killed in Mattapan around noon. Suffolk County District Attorney Kevin Hayden calls it another tragic incident in the city. Police are asking the public for help as they search for the killer. Sunday services at black churches in Boston address the beating of Tyree Nichols by Memphis police officers at the Morning Star Baptist Church in Mattapan. Minister Marvin Vinay quoted Martin Luther King Jr., who said there could be no satisfaction as long as blacks are victims of police brutality. Crimes are moving at a swift speed. Brutality is existing at an alarming rate, and our people are hurting our people, and we are the victim of such catastrophe. At the 12th Baptist Church in Roxbury, the Reverend Jeffrey Brown talked about the horror of watching the video of Nichols being attacked by police. The Woburn Teachers Union and School Committee are trying to reach a contract agreement to avert a strike tomorrow. The Woburn Teachers Association will walk if the two sides can't reach an agreement. The union says disagreements about compensation and class size are sticking points. Hundreds paraded through Chinatown to celebrate the Lunar New Year today. Mayor Wu says the turnout was the biggest that she's ever seen. In sports, uh, the Bruins and uh, the Florida Panthers are about to get underway down in Florida. In the forecast, partial clearing overnight with temperatures dropping into the 30s. And then tomorrow, partly to mostly sunny skies, Temps will rebound into the mid-40s and partly to mostly sunny skies with temperatures in the 30s on Tuesday and Wednesday. Right now in Boston, still an unseasonably mild 50 degrees. WBUR supporters include the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin in Memphis, Tennessee. It's the regular Sunday service at Centenary United Methodist Church in Memphis, but it's not a typical Sunday. Congregants have come together not just to worship and have fellowship, but also to mourn. In this case, the death of Tyree Nichols after a beating by Memphis police officers. Many are regulars, but others have come because it's a place that brings together the past and the present. Martin Luther King Jr. met with people here in April 1968 in support of the sanitation worker strike right before he was assassinated in Memphis. And many of the people we spoke with here have also been touched by police violence. One of my brothers is a former police officer, and the same thing happened to him by his own um, colleagues uh, several years ago in Nashville. That's Cynthia Davis, a retired minister. She says her brother, Reggie Miller, was beaten by Nashville police shortly after the Rodney King incident in the early 1990s, even though he was an officer himself, but in civilian clothes. Uh, his colleagues was jerked out of his car and beaten up, and it was the supervisors who came over and said, hey, that's one of our guys. And they said they didn't recognize him because he had on a baseball cap backward. I asked her what impact that had had on her family. It was a very long and turbulent and traumatic 
uh, even for our entire family, um, and for him as well, for his family. And we couldn't figure out why did they break all the procedures just like they did to jerk him out of the car and start the beating. And had there not been intervention, we don't know what would have happened to him. He was in a police-issued vehicle uh, that had expired tags. And so they said it was because of his expired tags that they pulled him over. But he was a black man in a car with expired tags. And the immediate response was jerking him out of the car and beating him up. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I can see, if you don't mind my saying, the emotion in your face, even as you're recounting this all these years later. Why do you think this keeps happening? I think uh, people who have been brutalized and traumatized um, as a people, I think sometimes the same brutality that has been inflicted, then those individuals hurt people, hurt other people. I also spoke with an interim church official named the Reverend David Weatherly. He knows just how violent Memphis can be because he was asked to step into his current position after his longtime friend, fellow pastor, the Reverend Artura Eason Williams, was killed in a carjacking last year. She pulled into her own driveway at the end of the day. By teenagers, as I understand it. Yes, yes. It just had to be very traumatic. I was just wondering, like, what was the... It's not a secret that Memphis had been experiencing a number of, of things like this, and I just kind of wonder what went through your mind and that of the, your community's mind when this happened. For me, it was... First of all, loss of my, year, my friend of 27 years, she had pulled into her own driveway at the end of a, of a day of ministry, and she was on the phone with a dear friend, fellow pastor, who heard the end of her life uh, play out over the phone and uh, knew something dreadful was happening or had happened. But the feeling mainly was the absolute loss, the senseless, needless loss of a person who was having such a tremendous impact for the goodwill of people in throughout the, the metro area of Memphis. So it just seems like a tragedy upon tragedy, you know? I mean, you're, you're still, I mean, dealing with not just you, but, but you and others who have experienced this kind of thing, you're dealing with that, and then this, this, this whole situation emerges that this young man who was essentially beaten to death and or died after this violent encounter with Memphis police. And I'm just wondering what went through your mind when you heard that. Even though we had not seen the video before Friday, we knew that the way officials were speaking, uh, government officials, the mayor, the uh, director of the police department, uh, the chief of the police department, that obviously this was, this was gonna be one of those moments that echoed uh, throughout the country because it's another one of those things on the list where unnecessary force seemed to be used to the point that a person lost their life. Police entities, police departments to, to change their ways or at least evaluate their, all the ways that they interact with the public in the various situations, especially when there's not an, an immediately known threat that would result in the need for aggressive tactics. We have seen as a nation uh, over the, 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 de the decades moments where police went too far and those moments can obviously have deadly consequences. I also met Glennette Mayo and Courtney Davis, lifelong members at Centenary United Methodist Church and lifelong friends. I asked what was going through their minds this Sunday at the service. I can't comprehend. I can't digest. That's Glennette Mayo again. And I try to understand how five people 
on one person is just just as bad. But then you 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 your job is to protect. And you lose all focus. What about you, Mr. Davis? What, what comes to mind as you think about all of what has happened here? As I unpacked it, especially today, as we stand in the very room that Martin Luther King had one of his finest, final strategy meetings yes. during the uh, strike during 19, in 1968 before his assassination, if you would look at uh, Ernest Withers has a collection of photographs. If you research it, you'll see a picture of Martin Luther King standing uh, with the press on those very steps outside of that door. As we bring it full circle to today and the occurrences, um, it's just highly disappointing that mm. in the last 55 years that we have not come any further than this in the construct of our community. Can I ask you, as a, if, if you don't mind, as, as a man, yes. have you had these fears growing up of the police, of police encounters. You grew up here. So it would have been 1985. Um, the police were serving a search warrant on the wrong house, and that happened to be my house. And um, I watched uh, firsthand how indiscriminately um, the police uh, uh, did a, a, a no-knock warrant and came in with that the, the gentleman with the search warrant was actually around the corner of the house that they were supposed to break into. Um, the, the, they claimed they made a drug buy at our house from my father at 2 o'clock in the morning, and my father worked 11 to 7. They had the wrong name on the search warrant. They tore the house up and never admitted, never ever admitted. I was 15. Just We have just randomly stopped people and asked them to tell us what I've asked you, and just about every single person of color that we have spoken to has had a similar story like yours. It, it, it's life. It's the way it is. It is actually the way it is. Here in Memphis, we also had the chance to meet with Representative Steve Cohen, whose congressional district includes much of the city. I asked him if his constituents had ever spoken to him about similar incidents, even before the police killing of Tyree Nichols. Memphis Police Department has its problems. Uh, but they also have some good police, and the, and the Memphis citizenry generally thinks that the police are uh, uh, necessary. I mean, there are some defund the police people on the streets, but the predominance of people think we need just crime's a major issue, and it's an issue in the black community and the white community. We've got a lot of auto thefts. We've got a lot of, uh, of murders. Uh, we had the very highly public murder of Eliza Fletcher, the kidnapping murder. Uh, in September, and then at this this next week, we had a fella go around the city and shoot, uh, I think, seven people and maybe kill four or five uh, shooting on the highway. And the city was basically brought down. Everybody was told shelter in place. That had never happened in Memphis before, and it was pretty unique to the country. The major story here for a lot of people has been street crime. It's street crime has affected people across the city in some very dramatic and, and, and troubling ways. There are those who argue that this focus on social justice, then law enforcement officers in, in the wake of really since George Floyd have been arguing that they're less effective because the city's so focused on social justice that they can't do their jobs. Is anybody saying that to you? And how do you respond to that? You know, my constituency includes the, 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 the includes the no defund the police and that you have to totally turn the system over and the system can't 
save itself. I, I have those people, uh, but the predominance of people that are a bit older and are more likely to be victims of crime because they have property and they have homes and they're older is, is not of that concern. I mean, they're concerned about social justice for sure, but they're concerned about getting the crime level down. How do you reconcile those things? I mean, the, the fear that some people have is that, you know, that it, how can it be that the price of protecting some people's safety is to abuse other people, to abrogate the rights of other well, I don't citizens? I think anybody thinks you know? that, it's, it's, that you need, can't have both. I think you can have both. In this situation where the police take somebody who apparently was just a very fine human being, done nothing wrong, and it just and killed him. That hasn't been something we've seen before in Memphis. Uh, although there have been shootings, as I say, there have been police shootings where I think people have been killed unjustly. You can do both things. You can be concerned about internal problems, which we are, and uh, and still fight carjackings and car thefts and uh, uh, robberies. And I mean, there are two or three uh, car uh, carjackings and or car thefts every night, every night, and in my neighborhood. And uh, and there have been killings not too far from here. So people are concerned about crime. It's a serious issue, and I'm concerned about it too. And I've been working, trying to work with the city mayor and the police chief about um, help, helping them wherever I can in the federal government with advising them of grants that may be available, uh, grants that might be for hiring police or for de-escalation training. And we need to avail ourselves of every grant that's, that's out there. And, then, and, the, and the federal government needs to help us. Congressman Steve Cohen, thank you so much for talking with us today. Good to be with NPR always. Honored. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bernadine Sun Megason and Tim O'Sullivan with Compass New England, helping clients navigate the evolving Massachusetts real estate market. More at homesbybernadine.com. Partial clearing overnight with temperatures in the 30s, partly sunny, mid-40s tomorrow, and then partly to mostly sunny skies with the cooler temps in the 30s for both Tuesday and Wednesday. Right now, it's still an unseasonably mild 50 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Preludes, Dave Malloy's musical fantasia in the mind of pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff, now through February 5th. Tickets at lyricstage.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Protesters are gathering around the country again today over the police beating death of Tyree Nichols after a traffic stop in Memphis earlier this month. Five now former police officers are facing murder charges. Some state lawmakers in Tennessee are calling for the passage of police reform bills. Nichols will be buried on Wednesday. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Cairo, Egypt today, the first stop on a three-day trip to the Middle East. He next heads to Jerusalem for talks with the right-wing government of Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And at the weekend box office, Avatar Way of Water held on to the top spot for a seventh weekend in a row with an estimated $15 million in ticket sales. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at ImaginableFutures.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. More than a dozen top Ukrainian officials were removed from their posts this past week. It took place as part of a wave of anti-corruption actions taken by the country's president, Volodymyr Zelensky. That's a big deal because one key aspect of Ukraine's attempts to join NATO, the defense alliance between the U.S. and a number of European countries, will be the kinds of anti-corruption efforts they have in place and whether they'll be able to maintain them. We wanted to know what these ousters could mean for Ukraine's efforts to join NATO. NATO and if they could affect the kind of aid and support Ukraine is receiving from the West. To help us better understand this issue and NATO's broader role in Ukraine's self-defense, we've called Ambassador Julianne Smith. She is the United States Permanent Representative to NATO, and she's with us now from Brussels. Ambassador Smith, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you. As we mentioned, a number of top officials either resigned or were fired this past Tuesday. Before we jump into you know what that means, I wanted to ask if if you have a sense of how serious the allegations were and what's your reaction to the removals? I mean, do you, from the from the U.S. perspective, from the NATO perspective, is this a step in the right direction? I think it's safe to say that NATO allies and certainly the United States looked at the quick and decisive actions that the Ukrainian government took and they applauded those efforts because what that ultimately signals to all of us is that Ukraine already has important monitoring and accountability measures in place. And it also says something about civil society and the press and the media inside Ukraine. And these are the things that we want to see fully functioning. It essentially signals that President Zelensky and his team, they take accountability seriously. And so in all, I think it's safe to say that the United States and our allies looked at that and felt somewhat reassured. So let me pick up on something you just said, that the allegations of corruption were uncovered by journalists, not through a governmental or international audit. So do the moves by Zelensky provide you know, more confidence in his leadership, or does it tell you that there's a problem? Well, there are a couple of thoughts on that. One, we do have confidence in President Zelensky and the ways in which he's been able to handle a huge amount of assistance coming in from the West, both economic assistance and, of course, all the security assistance. And we have no reason to express any concerns. We don't have any evidence that there have been problems with the management of that assistance. And we do believe that the Ukrainians have measures in place, those monitoring measures that I mentioned that are important. But you also noted that this did stem from the media. And that's an important part of the functioning of civil society. And one that we've certainly worked with Ukrainians over many, many years, well before the war got started. There have been a number of Western NGOs and governments that have worked closely with the Ukrainians on some of the reforms that they've worked to undertake themselves. So there's a lot of money and support going to Ukraine. 
Ukraine. You know, one of the sort of the issues at play here is whether Ukraine could ever be a part of NATO. NATO is not a party to the conflict per se, but NATO member nations are contributing a lot of money to Ukraine's defense uh, as individual member states. Recognizing that NATO itself is not a party to this, there's some restiveness on the part of the United States or some people in the United States, particularly in the Congress, in the new Congress, who have expressed a desire for more aggressive oversight. Does NATO have any role here as an entity? I think given the fact that NATO isn't providing direct support, either in terms of economic assistance or security assistance, NATO really isn't in a position right now to be monitoring the use of that assistance per se. I think you have heard, though, my colleagues in Washington talk about it from a U.S. perspective in terms of the bilateral assistance that the United States has donated. And in that case, we don't have any concerns. We don't have any evidence right now that we should have concerns concerns about misuse. So before we let you go, this whole question about NATO's unity in the face of Russia's attack on Ukraine, it's been kind of an ongoing conversation about whether NATO will stay united in the face of this. And, you know, as member nations' economies continue to experience the fallout from this, inflation, rising food prices, et cetera. I know it's a difficult thing to assess, but how would you assess kind of the state of the alliance's unity around this issue? Or how would you assess this? I know that we hear from our heads of Mm -hmm. state, like, you know, President Biden, that the alliance remains deeply united on this, but you do see sort of rest. I mean, the fact is that member nations, economies, some more than others, are experiencing this fallout. And I'm just wondering, as, as we go forward, as this conflict seems to sort of drag on, What do you think it will take to keep the alliance aligned on this question? Well, look, I sit inside the NATO alliance each and every day. We meet on the war in Ukraine every single week. And because we all bring different histories to the table and different perspectives, um, we have our differences. We have debates all the time. But I think that's why... I personally celebrate the unity we've been able to maintain for the last year, because despite those differences, we're still standing tall. We're standing in support of Ukrainians, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian military. And folks seem to have this impression that somehow debates fracture alliances. Mm. And I can assure you that they don't. We make a living out of debating and working through our differences. And at the end, we view reaching consensus as one of our greatest strengths. When the 30 allies of the alliance put their full weight behind something, in this case, Ukraine, it's very powerful and has a huge impact, certainly much more than if one of us expressed our view on any given situation or conflict. So I have been very impressed by what we've seen over the last year. I see no cracks in Alliance Unity. Instead, I see that we will keep coming into that main room and NATO headquarters and keep uh, working through any differences that bubble to the surface. That was Julianne Smith. She's the UN Permanent Representative to NATO. She joined us from Brussels, which is where NATO is headquartered. Ambassador Smith, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thanks for the invitation.
Facebook, the world's largest social network, is about to bring back one high-profile account to the ranks of its nearly 3 billion users, that of former President Donald Trump. Then-President Trump was suspended from Facebook and Instagram after the mob attack on the Capitol on January 6th for praising the violence that congressional investigators say he helped instigate. But that suspension came with an asterisk. Meta, Facebook's parent company, would reevaluate the suspension in two years. Now that Meta has decided to allow the former president back onto its platforms, it is also rolling out a new policy for those it is designating as public figures that's defined as government officials, political candidates, and people with over one million followers. But even with these new regulations, many fear Facebook has not made enough changes to tackle the spread of falsehoods. We wanted to talk more about the possibility of Trump returning to Facebook and the platform's ability to police misinformation. For that, we called Vivian Schiller. She's the executive director of Aspen Digital, a part of the Aspen Institute that's working to empower people to be responsible stewards of technology and media. She's the former global chair of news at Twitter, and we also want to mention the former president and CEO of NPR. And she's with us once again. Vivian Schiller, welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Michelle. Nice to, nice to be on the air with you. In Meta's statement on reinstating Trump, they said in regard to public safety, quote, our determination is that the risk has sufficiently receded. It goes on from there. But um, what, what is the metric for that? I think that, that's one of the, the questions. What is the metric for determining something like that? Because one can see where that wouldn't just be relevant to, to Trump, but to other public figures with a big megaphone. Right. And that's why it gets very complicated, regardless of how you feel about <laughs> Donald Trump and his, uh, and his call for, calls for insurrection, which are you know, pretty clear. It was two years ago. Um, he is no longer in office. He no longer wields the authority to, uh, in the same way that he did. Um, and so I, I think as a, you know, as a major platform, ne they needed to put in place an opportunity for someone to, you know, and I'm using air quotes here, to redeem themselves, uh, you know, and uh, by holding them very closely accountable for the kinds of posts that they put forward later. And the, the key thing here is they have to apply these rules consistently and they have to apply these rules religiously, even to Donald Trump. It's almost certain that uh, Trump is going to violate some of those rules pretty quickly. So I think the really interesting part is going to be what happens when he does. So the new policy for public figures addresses civil unrest. But what about misinformation and disinformation that doesn't fall under that category? And I want to point out here that disinformation and misinformation can be prevalent on Facebook. And when the former president was on the platform, for example, he posted numerous falsehoods ranging from misleading information about COVID-19 to, of course, again, falsely claiming that the 2020 election was stolen. So are there policies to address that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, it's important to distinguish just mis- and disinformation and mis- and disinformation that could arguably lead to immediate public harm. I mean, it, it is not against the law to be wrong on the Internet, and that includes for the president of the United States. Uh, he can lie all he wants. Uh, we may find it heinous, but... I would argue he should not be the platform for putting incorrect information out there. Where that changes is if there is direct and immediate threat, such as, you know, let's go storm the Capitol. <laughs> uh, please join me uh, on January 6th or mis- and disinformation that around the pandemic that could lead to, uh, you know, terrible negative health repercussions for people. So it's very, very tricky. They have put out quite explicit rules about what kind of 
uh, content is not permissible. And they've even um, designated that some of that content, if they find objectionable, will be downranked so it's not easily seen or that he can't um, use it for fundraising, can't make money off of it. Other kinds of content would cause him to be suspended again, either, you know, for another period of, you know, one or two years or potentially permanently. I want to go back to something you said earlier about how it's not against the law to be wrong on Facebook or any other platform for that matter. In 2021, a study that analyzed user behavior on Facebook around the 2020 election found that publishers who trafficked misinformation got six times the amount of likes, shares and interactions than traditional news sources. Why is that? <laughs> um, because uh, the, those that would seek to sow chaos um, are also very good at pushing our buttons as human beings. I don't know how we solve for that. Uh, content that makes us angry, content that makes us feel like it justifies our worldview, um, and anything that is sort of provocative or outlandish uh, is always going to uh, attract more attention than sort of sober facts. And I mean, this is a this is a, and on top of that. The platforms such as Facebook, their entire business model is about amplifying that content to get us to stick around longer. So this is a systemic issue that goes well beyond, you know, Donald Trump on Facebook and any Facebook posts he may or may not post. It's, you know, it's a much broader issue that I and many others are, are trying to figure out what is a better way for our civic information ecosystem, because this ain't it. With another presidential election upon us, I mean just about. I mean, we're at the midway point, but, you know, President Trump has already declared his candidacy. Other people are obviously, you know, sort of making their decisions right now. You've already said that this isn't something that has been easily correctable, that you can't really easily correct for. I just, just, what should we be thinking about here? Really, the best way forward is to design uh, new alternatives. And there's a lot of work being done in this space. Um, to design new alternatives to online information systems, and also critically to restore and improve uh, news, particularly at the local level in this country. Um, There is a massive news deficit. It's been decimated, and into that vacuum flows falsehoods and Facebook groups and Donald Trump's posts and all of that. So that's where we need to uh, pay our attention. That's Vivian Schiller. She's executive director of Aspen Digital. That's a part of the Aspen Institute. Uh, Vivian Schiller, thanks so much for talking to us once again. Glad to be with you. You're listening to NPR News. Last Monday, a cold, wintry day in Pakistan, there was a nationwide blackout. It lasted all day, leaving factories idle, businesses closed, and parents scrambling to collect their kids from classrooms that went dark by early afternoon. As NPR's Dia Hadid reports from Islamabad, it's part of an escalating crisis. Pakistanis have a rich catalogue of songs mocking their country's failures. Like this classic tune, the singer croons, the lights are off. This is how electricity works in Pakistan. Singers had more material this week when the entire power grid collapsed 
and many people didn't even realise there was a major problem. Like Ali, who works at a local news channel, we found him at a noisy working-class Islamabad market. He says power cuts are so frequent that he assumed it was, you know, one of the regular ones. So for hours he sat in the dark. He couldn't shower. It was only when I got to check the news that I realised it was nationwide. The cause of the blackout is still unknown. Authorities say they're investigating. But Musharraf Zaidi, who directs policy think tank to Budlub, says this episode signals a broader crisis. The national blackout that the country suffered the other day is really a manifestation and a commentary on the state of Pakistan's economy, on the state of Pakistan's governance, and on the darkness that will continue to envelop Pakistan for the months He's saying that because the blackout came during a week where Pakistan veered towards economic default. The country is meant to be at the receiving end of a bailout by the International Monetary Fund, an institution it has turned to more than 20 times in its 75-year history. But the current bailout has stalled because the finance minister had refused to implement reforms that the IMF demanded, including a halt to Pakistan artificially propping up its currency. Matters reached a crisis point this week when the country's foreign currency reserves dipped again, triggering fears it couldn't even cover three weeks of imports. This is the worst economic crisis that Pakistan has faced in decades. Maliha Lodi was a former Pakistani ambassador to the US and UN. Pakistan is on the brink of a sovereign default. By the end of a week that began with a nationwide blackout and ended with near default, Pakistan's government finally relented to one of the IMF's conditions and they allowed the local currency to devaluate. That's led to hopes that the bailout with the IMF might resume. But back in that working class market in Islamabad, taxi driver Abdul Qadir says he doesn't expect life to change for the better anytime soon. He says for the past year, he's been barely able to support his five children as inflation pushes up food and fuel prices. Our elites run around the world with a begging bowl, but they use it to lead a life of luxury. As we chat, a blind beggar sings in praise of Sufi saints to draw attention to his plight. Shoppers thrust small notes in his hand. One fellow takes his arm and helps him walk down nearby stairs, helps him across the road. It's this kind of solidarity that has helped ordinary Pakistanis survive, crisis after crisis. Dear Hadid, NPR News, Islamabad. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has been building a diverse administration in her first weeks in office but she's yet to appoint any Latino people to senior positions. The Common podcast breaks down the moment. Follow The Common on all the podcast places. 
In the forecast, partial clearing overnight. Temps in the 30s, partly sunny, mid-40s tomorrow. And partly to mostly sunny, 30s Tuesday and Wednesday, 50 now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy are scheduled to meet on Wednesday, and McCarthy says he's looking forward to discussing a reasonable and responsible way to lift the debt ceiling. But McCarthy tells CBS News cuts to Medicare and Social Security will be off the table. The Richnick Elementary School in Newport News, Virginia, is to reopen tomorrow. It's been closed since January 6th after a six-year-old boy shot his first-grade teacher, seriously injuring her. Authorities say it wasn't an accident. And Australian authorities continue to search for a tiny radioactive capsule that disappeared somewhere along the 870-mile journey from a Rio Tinto mine to the city of Perth. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from Imaginable Futures, supporting the Institute for Women's Policy Research, working to close inequality gaps for women and improve the economic well-being of families. IWPR.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. It's been one of the deadliest weeks in years in the ongoing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. On Thursday, Israeli forces killed nine Palestinians during a raid in the occupied West Bank. On Friday, as the Jewish Sabbath was getting underway, a Palestinian gunman killed seven people outside a synagogue, and two more Israelis were injured Saturday in another shooting in East Jerusalem. This follows months of increased raids by Israeli forces across the West Bank, recent rocket attacks into Israel from Gaza, and airstrikes in response. At times like this, attention naturally focuses on the violence of the moment. But a new feature film asks viewers to consider the roots of the conflict in a way they might not have seen before. Farha is the first feature by Darin Salam, who wrote and directed it based on stories recounted by family members. Set in 1948, during the formation of the State of Israel, it's the story of a Palestinian girl with big dreams of leaving her small village for the city to further her education, but whose dreams and her world are shattered by violence changing her and the world around her forever. It explores why a time celebrated by so many Israelis is seen so differently by Palestinians who call it the Nakba, Arabic for the catastrophe. It's an intimate and at times devastating film that's been well-received on the festival circuit since its premiere last year. It was selected as Jordan's official entry to this year's Academy Awards, but it has also been the subject of a fierce backlash, including from Israeli officials and others who object to its portrayal of atrocities allegedly committed by Israeli fighters during the campaign for independence. Some have called for boycotts of the film, of theaters that show it, and of Netflix for distributing it. And Darin Salam is with us now to tell us more about it. She's an Amman Jordan, where she lives. Darin, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michelle, for having me. 
So you've said the film is based on on a story or stories that that you have been told throughout your childhood. Would you just tell us a little bit about that? Tell us a bit more. It's a story that uh, I heard when I was a child from my mother, who met the real character. Her name was Radiya, but I chose Farha, which means uh, joy, because I I, I felt like... uh, how people talked about Palestine before 1948, it was like the joy that was stolen from the Palestinians. But it's uh, it's something that I heard when I was a child and it stayed with me. So as I said at the beginning, Farha is a girl who doesn't just want to be a homemaker. I mean, nothing that, not that there's anything wrong with being a homemaker, but um, she wants to get an education and to be a teacher. You know, I'm just thinking that the girl with her head in the book is the basis of so many stories that are familiar to us, like, you know, Beauty and the Beast, or there's, you know, there's a famous uh, short story by Isaac Bashiva Singer, Yentel the Yeshiva Boy, which a famous story from the 60s. I was just wondering how you decided that her character should be someone who wants to have, you know, the life of the mind, like to be a thinker? What, why, why do you think that came to you that way? Actually, uh, Palestinians are very, like, we're very always interested in education. And this is why I wanted to, to mention this. Also, I, there was a, a character that I read uh, about in a book, one of the books I read while doing the research for the film. And there was this girl, her name was Arifa. <laughs> And she was a rebel and she wanted to get an education in the city. And, and, and this also made me think of adding this aspect to the character, to Farha. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also I wanted to talk about a girl who's deprived from her childhood, but also from her dream, uh, which is education. I want to point out that this film has a lot of beautiful scenes about a way of life. But here now I want to play a scene that is a difficult one, but it goes to the heart of the criticism against the film. Please, don't do it! They're just children. They are not fighters. Please! I think people can understand why this is so emotionally devastating uh, and why this is so controversial. So, um, and I do want to say, because even without the benefit of the video, the scene is extremely, um, how can I say? It's disturbing, but not as graphic as one might think. So you made choices here as a filmmaker. So talk to me a little bit about the choices that you make and why the scene is so important. And I also want to know how you decided to film it. I didn't want to make a film about killing and and uh, war and death. I wanted to make a film about uh, a girl who was forced into this and who was deprived from her childhood and from her dreams, from her life, from everything, from her friend and her father. And it's a coming-of-age film, a humane story. I decided to to show only one scene as the climax. But if you notice, it's it's not even like you don't see much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mostly heard from Farha because she can't look. Mm-hmm. This scene is just a, a, a drop in an ocean of what, like compared to what happened back then in 1948. So as we said, there have been some furious reactions to the film. Uh, some Israeli officials and celebrities say the film presents a false narrative. It says that government officials even threatened to evoke state funds for theater in the Israeli city of Jaffa for showing the film. What is your response to these reactions? To be honest, I wasn't shocked from their reaction. I was shocked that they're denying that it happened, hmm. that uh, uh, the killing never happened and the, the Haganah militias uh, never killed anyone. Denying it is like continuation for the crime, you know. It's a continuation for the Nakba. And this is what really uh, uh, surprised me, 
because it's it's like uh, denying a tragedy that that like a nation went through and my grandparents are like one of these people you know my fa- my father was 6 months old when he was uh, uh, he was uh, very sick and he had fever and my grandparents had to leave because the next um area next to them they were hearing about massacres and killings so they had to take the baby and leave and if my father didn't survive this i wouldn't be like existing today you know accusing me and uh, and uh, of putting lies in the film and of being uh, anti-semite uh, was also very uh, offensive as a, as a as an arab as a semite woman you know I mean, look, it's not a documentary. I mean, it's a it's a feature film, which you wrote based on oral histories. But but there have been documentation, have there not, of the fact that atrocities did occur. Yeah. I mean, you do. Let me just ask you this, and I don't mean to cause offense. Were there second sources for your work? I know it's you have entirely every right as a filmmaker to rely on whatever source material that you choose, including oral history. But... Are there other documented sources that one could point to that document that these things occurred? Yes, uh, actually there was archive, uh, even their archive, by the way. There was this uh, very important uh, book by Elan Pape, uh, Ethnic Cleansing. There are other movies like uh, Tantura documentary recently, uh, who has um, soldiers who were from the Haganah militias, and they're talking about how many people they killed while laughing and how many 12-year-old girls they raped, Palestinians back then in the Nakba, and they're laughing about it. I mean, it's very easy to find uh, proof. It's not even like difficult. And this is why, to me, it's shocking because, um, I mean, come on. It's uh, like it's, it's many, many, um, like 400, more than 400 villages were destroyed, like maybe 24 uh, massacres happened. Seven million Palestinians are refugees today because of this, and seven uh, and seven hundred thousands or more were uh, forced into exile. Do you have now? Forgive me. I'm gonna I'm gonna push a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sympathy for the people who don't want to believe it because it does challenge a sense of a founding belief and. Many people are raised with this founding belief. I mean, I'm thinking about like in the United States, for example, you know, where we as children are raised with the idea that George Washington, the first president of the United States, was a heroic, uh, beatific figure. And then come to find out, you know, that he's was a, a, a person who enslaved people. And it's a challenge for people to confront a different version of the story that they have been told that makes them feel pride in their country. So I just have to ask, do you have any sympathy for people who just don't want to believe it? I, I know that like many are, are in denial because they were born listening to, to another um, story. I understand that this is what they know. Because, you know, uh, Michelle, I, like the film has been around uh, the world. And like sometimes in Europe and in the States and um, in many countries, some people come to me and say, I'm, I'm Jewish and I never knew this. Many people call the film as an eye-opener. And I respect uh, these people who are willing to learn and understand the truth. I know that truth hurts. And this is why I think it's it's very painful for some. It's our truth. It's also my history. And the history of my family needs to be respected and accepted and and acknowledged and not denied, you know. Uh, and, and I respect anyone who is willing to learn and understand my story. So as you were just starting to talk about this, so I want to ask further, we've talked about the negative responses. What about the positive ones? Are there any that particularly stand out? 
Yeah, actually, like I received many emails and messages from people saying thank you for uh, letting our voice uh, be heard. And another message that was emotional to me was that uh, from a woman who witnessed the Nakba, that her, her mother said, I'm Farha, and they can't deny that this happened. And every Palestinian girl who witnessed the Nakba is Farha. And then another one sent, my mother is Farha, my grandmother is Farha. And this is like was one of the most emotional uh, things I received. That was writer and director Darin Salam. Her film Farha is streaming now on Netflix. Darin Salam, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Michelle. And finally today, we came here to Memphis to get a sense of how people here are responding to the latest revelations about the death of Tyree Nichols earlier this month after he was beaten by five former Memphis police officers. Videos of the incident made public Friday show an array of disturbing scenes, including overwhelming brutality and what seems an effort to create a cover story to justify it. One of the people we met here is Justin Pearson. He grew up in Memphis and has made a name for himself as an activist, and he spent years trying to prevent an oil pipeline from being built over an aquifer here. This past Tuesday, he won a seat in the Tennessee House of Representatives. When he's sworn in later this week, he will be the second youngest person serving in that body. When we met earlier today, I asked him to share his thoughts about recent events as well as his hopes to change things. It's just a level of pain that we are all enduring at this point. And we had the opportunity to see his mother speak alongside Ben Crump. And it was one of the most challenging experiences I've ever had in my life to witness a black mother publicly mourn over a son that's one year older than me. We are dealing with an immense amount of grief from his murder by police and my own classmate's murder by someone else in the same week. In the same week? In the same week. And so it's been a really difficult time. How do you think about that? you pray a lot. I assume your friend, right. forgive me, yeah. what, was it a street crime, as it were, what we call, how, why, how did your friend die? Yeah, he was murdered. He was, he, murdered. Was, he was shot and killed and then set a fire. It's horrible. Uh, in the same week. In the same week. Um, and Larry Thorne's his name. And he was a really sweet human being. And we, again, we graduated high school together. In fact, I did a podcast with the Southern Environmental Law Center, and he's in the podcast because when I walked up to the school to do the interview, he was right there working with our flag team. Forgive me for, first of all, I'm so sorry for the Appreciate loss that. of your friend and for the loss of your fellow citizen. Yeah. Um, but how do you think about that? Because the stated reason for putting this group together was to fight crime, right? As to sort of this response to what a lot of people are very distressed about, mm-hmm. which is an increase in, you know, last year Memphis set a record, you know, for it's homicides, homicides and it bested the previous record, which was the mm-hmm. year before. Mm-hmm. And so, so the argument was that, the, that this unit, the special unit, was supposed to deal with, you know, hot spots. Yeah. And and yet, you know, so, what do you, how do you think about that? Yeah. The institutional failures and harm of having a scorpion gang within the police force uh, has created more trauma and harm than any benefits that it could have possibly have thought that it was going to create. Well, I was gonna ask you about that. Like, what do you make of the fact that the police department is majority black, the police chief is black, and all five officers who are the main protagonists here are all black? 
Does that mean something yeah. to you? It means a lot to me. There's something systematically wrong here. Uh, and it is a system of white supremacy, right? It is a system of anti-black racism that can have black people perpetuating racist practices and policies that lead to outcomes where people are viewed more like a criminal than your cousin or your brother. And I think in this instance, it's, a, it's, a, it's an apparent example of what happens when we have unchecked power for people who we have empowered with the ability to harm us. We give them guns. We give them badges. We give them the ability to say, you are responsible for the life of, for us, 600,000 people. And when we do that and they operate in ways that are unchecked and in ways that where the intention from the beginning is wrong, they hurt us. Before we let you go, you are going to be sworn in as a state representative yeah. in the next couple of days. Like, what's, what's your job right now? What's job one? As we said, you kind of got involved in public service because of environmental activism, mm -hmm. and then this occurs. Like, do, what, what's your plan? Do you, do you have one? Yeah, uh, I will be joining uh, the Criminal Justice Committee at the State House, and our work, as it always has been, is to build power locally that has effect in our city, our county, and across the state of Tennessee. Listen, my job is not stop in Nashville, nor to start there. Memphians and Shelby Countyans elected me, and I'm deeply concerned about what's happening here, and elevating the issues of our community to a state level is going to be the work. And so in these committees, we're going to put forward some legislation that helps to hold people who have been given these positions of authority and power accountable, and also helps to heal our communities who are being wounded as victims of violence, whether it be by police or in other ways. And so this is obviously a priority, and I'll be working with members of the city council and passing some legislation here as well, and staying actively engaged in our movement for justice that's here as well. Justin Pearson, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much.